From Audio Boom comes Covert, a new podcast that delves into the murky world of spies, soldiers, and top secret military operations. I'm Jamie Rennell, and together we'll discover the real stories of history's greatest classified missions, told by the operatives, soldiers, and journalists who experienced it firsthand. Follow Covert on Spotify or subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows. Fifteen seconds. Guidance is internal. Ten, nine, ignition sequence start. Space nuts. Five, four, three, two. One, two, three, four, five, five, four, three, two, one. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello again and welcome to the Space Nuts. I'm Andrew Dunkley, your host, and joining me uh, every week is Dr Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory. Hello there, Fred. Another Space Nuts. Hi, Andrew. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's only two in a packet. I don't know how that happened. Okay, all right. Yeah, do they come shelled or not shelled? (laughs) Well, you do. I've still got hair. (laughs) Uh, Yes, you do. That's right. I've noticed Mm. that. (laughs) Now, uh, dad jokes aside... Uh, today we're, we're talking about uh, a couple of things. One of them's quite unusual and, uh, and, and has been known about for probably 16 or 17 years, but uh, they're only just piecing together what they, what they saw back then. And it is rather fascinating. It involves black holes, X-rays and radio waves. And uh, then we're going to follow it up by uh, revisiting space tourism, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Uh, but now, now they've gone uh, in this high-tech world back to using posters <laughs> to get people to jump on a spaceship. So uh, that would seem a little odd. But first, let's, uh, let's talk about uh, this, this unusual discovery involving a spaceship that's, uh, or spacecraft that's been out there for quite some time and actually made this discovery in 1999, and that is um, uh, some sort of activity involving a... Now, let me get this right. A black hole, jets of light, X-rays and radio waves. Uh, pretty good. Pretty good. Uh, okay, we can go now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, the jets, the jets are just not quite light, though. Um, I mean, they they look like lightsabers. They are they're yes. bright, but that's because they're radiating X-rays, and these images were taken with an X-ray telescope. But actually, what we're seeing here is jets of subatomic particles, um, absolutely rocketing through space at very nearly the speed of light. So, backtracking to the start of the story, as you said, uh, back in 1999, uh, a space telescope. Uh, called Chandra. Um, Chandra is named actually after one of the great names in uh, high-energy astronomy, uh, and it's uh, operated by NASA. It's one of the, their great space observatories, which include uh, things like uh, the Hubble Space Telescope um, uh, and, and various other uh, major uh, instruments which are in orbit uh, around the Earth. The Chandra Space Telescope, though, looks at X-rays. So the idea is that you use space to um, free yourself from the boundaries imposed by the Earth's atmosphere. Mm -hmm. You can see stuff that would not make it to the surface of the Earth. And, um, I mean, many people, I think, are surprised that the universe is full of X-rays charging around. Uh, But but that's true. There are many natural processes that that give rise to X-rays. And you can learn a lot by looking at them. But you've got to put your telescope above the Earth's surface. Actually, X-ray telescopes have to be cleverly designed as well because you might um, 
you, you might remember, Andrew, that one of the basic properties of X-rays is that they, they go through stuff pretty easily. Yes, they uh, do. So if you put an ordinary telescope mirror there, the X-rays just go straight through it, uh, and it doesn't make any, doesn't have any focusing effect. So X-ray telescopes are very unusual and use uh, very high-tech ideas. Uh, they used to use things called grazing incidence telescopes, where the, the beam of X-rays uh, hits the, the mirror almost, uh, uh, almost flat on and just skims across it. Uh, I think the technology's moved on a bit since then. I'm not actually a, an X-ray astronomy specialist. However, back to the story. Back in uh, the early days of the Chandra Observatory, one of the known X-ray sources in the sky uh, was selected for special study. It's called Pictor A. Uh, it's Pictor because that's the constellation it's in. It's a southern hemisphere constellation. And A because it was the first bright X-ray source discovered in that constellation. So Pictor A is a very well-studied object. But what we're seeing now is a kind of melding of something like 15 years' worth of data that uh, Chandra has obtained uh, on Pictor A. Uh, those have been, th those uh, data have been melded with images made uh, in uh, basically uh, in, in radio wavelengths, so you're looking now at the co complete, the completely the opposite end of the spectrum. You remember the electromagnetic spectrum runs all the way from um, uh, actually from gamma rays and X rays through ultraviolet, visible light, infrared, and then streams off into radio waves at the long mm. wavelength end. So what is happening here is that astronomers are combining the short wavelength data, the X-ray stuff from Chandra, with radio data, which actually comes from uh, a telescope which is very close to our hearts here in Australia, the Australia Telescope Compact Array, uh, which is a series of six dishes up in Narrabri in uh, in northwestern New South Wales, still going strong. Uh, I was uh, I remember being at the opening of the Australia Telescope Compact Array, which must have been round about 1984, 85, 86, something like that. Uh, so it's, it's been one of the stalwarts of uh, radio astronomy uh, throughout uh, Australia's astronomical history. Uh, and it's capable of making images with radio waves. And so what we've got here now is this like a colour composite, or almost, of the uh, images from the X-ray telescope, which are in blue, and the images from the radio telescope, which are in red. Uh, so you can clearly see the difference. But what you see is just how different the object looks in these different wavelengths and how it tells you a story about the physics that, uh, that is going on in this place. That's really the, the, the reason why we are so excited about the fact that we can observe the universe in all these wavelengths now. Yes, and, and they, I think they've now determined that most galaxies have at their centre a black hole. Our own galaxy certainly uh, does. That's, that's uh, been uh, determined. But this one uh, in uh, Pictor A is a bit different from your average black hole. Uh, that's right. So it, it has a black hole at the middle of is basically a, there is a host galaxy here. Now, um, our galaxy is a very sedate and well behaved place. It's got these beautiful spiral arms made of stars and gas and dust. In, in one of them sits the sun and its family of planets. Uh, and in the center, as you said, there is a something like a 3.6 million solar mass. That's 3.6 million times the mass of the sun black hole, hmm. uh, which um, is 
again, relatively benign. It's not doing anything particularly untoward. Once in a while, our black hole brightens up in actually in the infrared part of the spectrum when something falls into it. And it's uh, this thing, whatever's falling into it, gets whizzed up, accelerated to a very high level uh, of uh, acceleration, and that causes particles to collide, and that releases infrared radiation. So uh, in, in complete contrast is this uh, black hole at the centre of Pictor A, which is actively gobbling up um, gas and dust and probably stars, maybe even planets too, in its immediate surroundings. So it's really having an enormous galactic feast. And when black holes do that, we call them active black holes because they're, they're chewing up their surroundings, but they tend to uh, do something which is always completely non-intuitive. Uh, you've got this swirling disk of material that's being swallowed up by the black hole, but it then releases particles basically uh, exactly at right angles to the disk. So you get these jets streaming out, and we, we call them, the technical term is jets. Uh, they're jets of material. <laughs> I um, just love the way astronomy goes down that road. You know, uh, they build a, a big telescope and they call it the big telescope. The big telescope, yeah. We, we like <laughs> so these jets are jets. Yeah, we're not actually very good at names. So. <laughs> Anyway, but uh, so, you know, that it's sort of almost beggars belief. How can this happen? This thing's swallowing up material, but it's squirting out stuff in its north and south poles. You can see because we can see one another, Andrew, that I'm uh, gesticulating yes. wildly with my hands. I hope the listeners to this podcast can see that as well, <laughs> at least in their imaginations. Why does it do that? And it all comes about because of intense magnetic fields um, around, the mag uh, around the black hole, which are basically funneling these jets of material and propelling them outwards at almost the speed of light. And <clears throat> so these images, um, the, the X-ray images are what reveal the two jets coming from Pictor A, one going basically north, the other going south. Uh, but what is really, um, revealed by the radio observations is what happens to the jets when they start colliding with the what we call the interstellar or intergalactic medium, the, the, the very rarefied gas which sits in the space between the stars and indeed between the galaxies. <clears throat> so these jets of material pile into this, uh, into this intergalactic medium and basically make a bubble uh, of, um, of material uh, which swells up as the jets keep on churning out. And so now what we see with the radio waves is the, uh, the energy that's going into that bubble is basically transferred to radio emission. And we can see in the radio images two bubbles at the end of these jets, uh, vast bubbles, in fact. The whole thing we're talking about is something like six times the diameter of our own galaxy. So we're talking on scales of maybe um, up to a million light years, something of that order, perhaps a bit less than that. It is just so hard to comprehend those kinds of distances and, and sizes and uh, getting your head around something like that. I mean, going to the moon takes... Yeah, five, right. five days and, and that seems like a long trip we're talking something that's you, you could not possibly achieve those kinds of distances not not in our current state of technology indeed that's right so yes you're talking i mean it's taking light a million years to cross from one end of this thing to the other so it's uh, uh it, it's it's big scale stuff but of course that's the whole thing about the universe what we're seeing is physics on the very largest scales and that's why the universe is such a fantastic laboratory 
to work out, you know, the, the deep realities of, of life, the universe and everything. Because um, were it not for the universe, we, we probably wouldn't know about relativity. I mean, Einstein might have put that all together in his mind, but there would have been no way of testing it. Whereas now we can test all these things directly uh, by observing the phenomena taking place deep in the universe. <clears throat> and these uh, jets of material are just one example of that. Very good. Okay. Uh, you're listening to The Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Dr. Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory. Three, two, one. Space Nuts. Now to our, our next topic, and that is space tourism. Now, we've talked about space tourism before uh, with um, a lot of competing interests in, in that uh, future industry and a lot of testing going on about uh, return-to-earth vehicles and, and the like. But how do you get people to book a trip into space well you could probably do it on an email you might do a television advertising campaign or a radio campaign or get a lot of media attention that gets people interested and want to part with their precious dollars to spend a few moments floating around in space well nasa's come up with an innovative idea of using posters Fred, um, they're very good posters, but sticking up a poster in this day and age would seem a little bit behind the times. Um, I think that might be the point of the exercise, (laughs) Andrew, Um, because these are not just ordinary posters. I mean, these are they're very, very striking, and they clearly have a, you know, they've got a flavour of them. Of uh, I remember uh, seeing lots of uh, radio, uh, sorry, posters for railway journeys. Yes, Uh, the, the, the the UK had a whole, you know, a whole branch of uh, the world of art that was railway posters. It was posters telling you to go to Bexhill-on-Sea or, or Cleethorpes or somewhere like that, and with um, really quite, uh, uh, quite vivid um, pictures in a very stylistic way, showing uh, in bold and bright colours how wonderful these places uh, were. And I think NASA is doing something similar with the solar system. It has to be said... It is just a touch tongue-in-cheek. I, I, uh, I get that impression. They're very <laughs> Art Deco, aren't they? They're Art Deco, that's right. Uh, so they, they were designed by two designers, Don and Ryan Clark. They were, uh, have a company called Invisible Creatures. That might give you a hint as to the kind of level that they work on. But these graphics um, are really uh, what a, a poster designer might do uh, faced with the kind of prospects that we have already seen in terms of robotic space exploration. So the posters I've seen, uh, first of all, uh, the historic sites of Mars, multiple tour, tours available, the robotic pioneers, the, you know, the, 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 the diagrams uh, showing, well, not diagrams so much as bold uh, design features, showing these rather stylized rockets, something looking actually rather like the rockets that were uh, flown immediately after the Second World War, uh, but brought up today in a very vivid fashion. There's another one uh, advertising the Grand Tour, the once-in-a-lifetime getaway. Now, you you might be too young to remember this, uh, Andrew, but the Mm -hmm. Grand Tour was what the Pioneer and Voyager spacecraft did in the late 1970s. Two spacecraft, sorry, two sets of spacecraft, there were two each, so four altogether, which actually explored the outer solar system uh, by having these gravitational slingshots uh, around the planets to get all the way out. So they took in 
uh, all four of the gas giant planets with this grand tour. I'm sorry to say I'm not too old. I do remember that. <laughs> <laughs> I was being kind. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, the, um, the, 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 the poster for the grand tour uh, has Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, the four gas giants, once in a lifetime getaway, as, as I've said, experience the charm of gravity assists. Mm. Um, and it, it points to the fact that the possibilities of this grand tour occur every 173 years and that's why nasa grabbed that opportunity with both hands back in the 1970 to do that uh, to do exactly that to use the gravitational distribution that the, the alignment of the planets essentially to get a quick trip out and the other one that i like very much um andrew is visit beautiful southern Enceladus. Uh, now, you and I have spoken many times about Enceladus because yes. of its ice geysers. And uh, the subtitle for this is More Than 100 Breathtaking Geysers, the home of cold faithful. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> booking tours now. Very and clever. So, yeah, they are. So what they're doing is they're taking... Um, missions that have already occurred that's the Cassini mission of course which has explored Enceladus for us mm. but turning it into a kind of human dimension and, uh, and making it into posters that may be the kind of thing that down the track we will be seeing as, as space tourism finally gets a, a toehold in the solar system and it becomes commonplace to, to take in the, the ice geysers of, uh, of Enceladus What we see it portrayed in science fiction the capacity to you know, flash from Earth to Saturn or something like that do you think the day will come, if humanity survives, uh, where we will develop technologies that enable us to make these trips on a you know, fairly fast platform? If, if you're going to speed things up, you really have to... Uh, well, you, you have to, first of all, within the solar system, you've got to provide uh, very energetic uh, sources of you know rocket propulsion essentially in order to to overcome the limitations that we have at the moment so the the, the fastest spacecraft ever launched was the one that went to uh, went still on its way of course but it flew by uh, pluto last year uh, new horizons uh, achieved a maximum velocity with respect to the sun of 23 kilometers per second and that was with a gravitational assist around jupiter uh, but that still took the best part of 10 years to get out to pluto it crossed the orbit of jupiter within a year so it may be that if the technology advances you could you could have tours that are on a reasonable time scale but it's still you know you're still talking about big distances mm. uh, and uh, and and basically a lot of time spent in space not doing very much other than looking out the window and of course the view wouldn't change very much from day to day so i think the big breakthrough in tourism will come if and when we learn how to travel faster than the speed of light uh, that will that defies physics at the moment it's pie in the sky uh, i can't see any prospect of it ever happening but who, uh, but you know never say never that's the uh, the watchword of science so maybe one day meanwhile we've got um these posters they, they were actually commissioned by jpl the jet propulsion laboratory and and they've put them in a calendar they're jpl's visions of the future calendar for 2016 so you can and probably find a way of putting them on your own wall. Sounds good. All right, Fred, <laughs> thank you once again, and we will catch you next week. Sounds great. Thanks a lot, Andrew. Dr. Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory, and from me, Andrew Dunkley, thank you for your company, and we'll uh, join you again very soon on the Space Nuts. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. You can sign up for us on iTunes, Stitcher, Audio Boom. 
Pocket Casts and an array of other podcast uh, aggregators. And uh, join us every week. We'll look forward to catching you next time. Space Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts Podcast. Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes, Audioboom and Stitcher or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Sites.com. From Audioboom comes Covert, a new podcast that delves into the murky world of spies, soldiers, and top-secret military operations. I'm Jamie Rennell, and together we'll discover the real stories of history's greatest classified missions, told by the operatives, soldiers, and journalists who experienced it firsthand. Follow Covert on Spotify or subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows.